Hey there, history fans. Melissa here. I just want to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is one of our older episodes. So the way that we sound here is a bit different from what we sound like today. Over time, we've been able to change our format a bit. We've acquired new editing software as well as new mics. So if the sound quality here isn't to your liking, please feel free to check out any of our newer episodes from Elmer McCurdy or anything from about March 18th up to today. I promise they sound a lot better. Otherwise, please enjoy the episode. We hope you learned something new and we hope to have you back for more episodes as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. Hey there, history fans. Hey, history fans. Wow. And welcome to a new episode of the History Explains the history It All Explains Paul. It All podcast. Today's episode is on Baron Rothschild II. Also known as Go ahead. Lionel Walter Rothschild. What? Well, that was his name. Baron Rothschild was his title. <laughs> <laughs> Lionel Walter Rothschild was his name. He was known as the second Baron Rothschild or Baron Rothschild II. That was the title he was given. But before we delve into the full episode, we do have a weird history. Don't we? Don't we? Don't Yay. we? Okay. Always. So this is the tale of Joseph Palmer and his beard of justice. So a little okay. background. Joseph. So Joseph Palmer was born in 1789 in No Town, which is kind of an interesting name for a town, uh, which was a farming village between Leominster and Fitchburg in Massachusetts. He also fought in the War of 1812. And this was during... The early Victorian, this, this particular happenstance happened in the very early Victorian uh, era, late, so about the 18-teens. So, you know how much the later Victorians loved their beards, right? They didn't. The late Victorians loved their beards. Yes, oh, they late. Did. Sorry, I misheard. Yes. I misheard the late. Yeah. So, around 1829, no, beards were a no-no. No, no, no distinguished gentleman had a beard. In fact, it was actually said regarding Joseph Palmer, only Jewish men had beards and Joseph Palmer. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. No mustaches, no beards, clean shaven, gentlemanly attire. Yep. Yep. So but Joseph Palmer and his area was actually described in one person's words, as an honest, kindly man, a good citizen, deeply religious, but tolerant, a man of intellectual interests. But also most people found him rather eccentric. I don't know if it was necessarily he was a full teetotaler, but he was definitely part of a 
a temperance community of sorts. So where most people working the field afterwards would probably have go to the pub, he wouldn't serve rum to his hired farm hands because he didn't believe in alcohol. But he'd be very kind and, and helpful to them, but no alcohol on my farm. And then around age 40, so 1829, he decided, I'm going to emulate Moses and Jesus and grow myself a beard. Uh-huh. A beard he grew. It didn't get super long, unlike uh, another, I, I think some obscure person I'll mention at the end of this, because it's a really interesting little tack on I'm going to add. But as I said, beards were a big no-no. It was kind of mostly seen for... As I said, the Jewish Americans, Joseph Palmer. And if you had a beard, most people considered you, you to be eccentric, weird, uh, uncouth, homeless, hobos. People who were not able to shave themselves were not to be a part of their society. So obviously, Joseph Palmer got mocked and harassed. And his minister at one point told him he looked like the devil. Which he replied to him saying, Mr. Trask, are you not mistaken in your comparison of personages? I've never seen a picture of the ruler of the sulfurious regions with much of a beard. But if I remember correctly, Jesus wore a beard not unlike mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. So one day, 1830, he was on his way to a, a hotel in Fitchburg to deliver meat and cucumbers. Cucumbers. That's an odd combination. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can understand it because he's on the farming land, but just an odd combination of meat and cucumbers, not meat and vegetables. Meat and cucumbers. Okay. Just meat and cucumbers. Mm -hmm. That's um, odd. Yeah. No, well, what's odd is happens afterwards and has nothing to do with the cucumbers. Care to take a guess as to what happened to him on his way to, to the hotel? He got mugged? Close. If by mug you mean four people approached him with scissors and razors and tried to cut off his beard. That what? Yeah. As I said, beards were uncouth. Anyone with a beard was not allowed in the society. And despite being very religious and being and trying to emulate Jesus and Moses, it was not thought of to be genuinely with a beard. So yeah, four men approached him with scissors and razors and literally tried to cut, they, they tried to hold him down while someone tried to cut off his beard. Mm -hmm. Wow. People are messed yeah. up. Well, he fought back. He ended up actually cutting two of the legs with his own jackknife. And for this, in defense of himself, the authorities actually arrested Palmer and charged him with an unprovoked assault. So they arrested the guy that was defending himself rather than the people that attacked him. Correct. They just walked. No, and it gets, it gets worse. Actually, it gets oh. a lot worse. Judge David Brigham ordered him to pay a $10 fine, $40 court fees, and a $700 bond. Now, that's $700 in 1830. Ooh. And today's Ooh. money, yeah, and today's money, that's $19,800. Ridiculous. Uh-huh. So instead of paying the bond, he went directly to the Worcester County Jail. And it gets even worse from there. While he was in jail, and jails back then probably weren't all that great. We've talked about Port Arthur. Yeah. 
So he <laughs> was able to actually keep a detailed journey, a detailed journal of everything that was going on. He recorded that he got harassed. There were regular beatings. He was starved. At one point, it says that he was trying to uh, talk to a lawyer. Or actually, I'm sorry, the uh, the sheriff of the Worcester County, Calvin Willard, he was trying to let him know everything that was going on, all the beatings and punishments and everything that were going on on him particularly. And he said in a letter sending it to Calvin Willard, he, he's like, this is all the food they've given me today, which was literally just a scrap of food that was able to fit inside of an envelope. Pretty bad. What the freak? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And... People kept coming to visit him in prison and saying, you don't really belong in here. You should go. You just have to pay the $700. And just, no, I'm not paying $700. And he's actually known for saying, if I ain't safe person to have my liberty, I ought not to go out. And I'm willing to stay in, in confinement till I am. And wow. Lily, he was, yeah, he's, he was known for literally being in jail for defending himself. So he, it actually became an embarrassment to the county. And there were actually different groups that were asking him to pay his fine and leave as well, too. So everyone's just like, dude, you're just embarrassing everybody. Just pay the money. And But the man has principles. I wouldn't pay the money either, even if I can't. I mean, I can't grow a beard, but I wouldn't pay. <laughs> but geez, like. They're, they're, they're just like, pay the money, you're embarrassing us? Uh, what? How Cut your beard you off. Pay the mon- How about you pay the money for him so that he doesn't embarrass you? What? Well, he said, he, yeah, well, they wanted to cut the beard off, too. I mean, it's kind of probably part of it. That's and so eventually... Dumb. Right. It gets, it gets a bit better. Actually, it gets more interesting at the end. So, eventually, Palmer's mother is writing a letter to judge Brigham himself and saying, let my son out of jail. I need him to come home. We need him on the farm. Mm-hmm. And even still, even at his mother's request, Palmer wouldn't leave. So eventually, as I said, he became an embarrassment. People were kind of rallying for him. People were rallying against him saying, just pay the fine. We'll let you go. Eventually, the jailers literally just carried him out of jail in a chair and just set him on the sidewalk, saying, fine, go. And so he kind of goes back to doing what he was doing before. He actually, not long afterwards, him, William Lloyd Garrison, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Bronson Alcott, Louisa May Alcott, and other 12 people founded a utopian community called the Fruitlands in Harvard and Massachusetts. Yeah. And... Because no one else, obviously, most of those people are poets and writers, as we know the Emerson and the Alcots to be particularly. So he actually was able to keep Fruitlands going. And in hmm. fact, uh, Louisa okay. May Alcott wrote, wrote a book called Transcendental Wild Oats. And the character Moses White is actually based off of Palmer. That's really cool, actually. Yeah. I haven't read it, but that is pretty cool. Uh, the commune didn't actually last all that long. It only broke up about seven, eight months later. But mm-hmm. Palmer was actually able to buy the land itself. And he and his wife, Nancy, welcomed these bearded hobos and other writers and reformers who came to visit over the next 20 years. The neighbors around that in that farming community actually called it Old Palmer's Home for Tramps. 
That's harsh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he passed Betrayals. away at 80. He passed away at age 84 in 1873. And guess what was in fashion by the time he died? A beard. A beard. Beards, mutton chops, sideburns, and big old mustaches. Oh my God. Yeah. That's and so I said, ridiculous it, over yeah. fashion. Who cares? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I understand correctly, beards weren't really much of a thing until. Albert became popular because he was, he was known for having his facial hair and beard, yeah. which I think yeah, was one of the things mustache. that Victoria really liked. Yeah. Sorry. I think he had a big mustache, if I remember. A mustache or he had a, a, a beard going a with beard? the big mutton chops. I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, you can look up a picture via Google. Oh, yeah. Victoria and Albert. That's literally mm. all you have to type into Google and click on images. <laughs> There's going to be 50 billion pictures of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, another man with a very uh... infamous beard. This one, and it, it, it's just so it's such a small story, but I thought I'd tack it on. So this one actually mm-hmm. happened in 1567. Oh God! So even earlier. Okay. Oh, much earlier. Yeah. So this is a man named Hans Steininger. And he was actually the mayor of Braunau and what is now present-day Austria. And he (laughs) is known for two things. Mm. He is known for having the world's longest beard, which some say four and a half feet. I've also heard six feet. But, all right, sorry. Yeah, so somewhere between four and a half feet and six feet long. That's a bit of a discrepancy, but still four four and a half foot long beard is pretty long. You think? It's and almost our height. <laughs> We're short. <laughs> well, I'll keep laughing. I'll just go. I'll just tell you the rest of the story. You just keep laughing because this one's kind of interesting. Okay. And normally he would walk around with his very, very long beard rolled up and then actually stuffed in a pocket of a waistcoat or an actual coat, maybe in a, a side pocket. Mm-hmm. But at one point, there was a large fire in town causing a lot of panic. And and his panic forgot to pick up his beard, which he then tripped over and tumbled down a flight of stairs, breaking his neck. Literally killed, killed by his own beard. Oh. Yikes. Yeah. No, I don't like. I don't like. Wow. That's a great way to end weird history. <laughs> <laughs> a hippie commune, so a hippie commune in the early Victorian times, and death by beard. Yeah. <laughs> On to the main topic of the day. <laughs> more, more weirdness with this guy, for sure. Uh, I don't, I don't know if anyone can top your weirdness there. in, in that one, he was odd, but he wasn't completely and utterly. As weird as that, all all of that, especially like tripping down the stairs and dying over your own beard. Oh, that's just a little silly death, I suppose. I guess you call that a stupid death. But unfortunate, but interesting. <laughs> okay. I did actually read that in my Thousand and One Stupid Deaths book. Uh-huh. Which I, I did finish, and you can borrow that next time I see you. Oh, yay. So... Lionel Walter Rothschild, the second Baron Rothschild. 
He was born on February 8th, 1868, in London, England. And he died on August 27th, 1937, in Tring, Buckinghamshire, England. And he was a really tall guy. He was actually about six foot three. He was known for being shy. And I think part of that had to do with like, he had a speech impediment. And he did, he never married, but he did have mistresses. As was custom or common, at least at the time. It was common to have mistresses. It was uncommon to not get married, though. Normally, people married just to produce an heir. That was still pretty popular in the 1860s. That's true. It, it, especially when you have the title Baron Rothschild. And your dad is. You need an, you need, you need an heir. <laughs> Well, yeah, especially if your dad is insistent that you essentially follow his his footsteps into banking and politics. Oh yes, let's get into his his daddy. Uh, he's the uh, Lionel is the eldest son of Nathan Marin, Mayor Rothschild, who actually died in 1915, which, if you think about it, is only like 20 years before, 20 some odd years before Lionel. Walter Rothschild died, actually. Nathan was a financier, and he actually, they had a banking, they had a bank, and he was one of the first Jewish people of the aristocracy in England, actually. I think that's pretty interesting, especially during the times. Lionel Walter Rothschild, I'll talk about it later, uh, goes on to be ha have an important part in the Jewish setup of Israel, I guess we could say. Lionel studied at the University of Bonn, and then he moved on to Magdalene College in Cambridge. It's actually a beautiful college. He pursued zoology under Alfred Newton, but after two years of studying at Magdalene, he actually decided to leave. So he did not receive a degree in, co in college. He did not complete his schooling. But he also was an avid collector you want to elaborate more on his collections? Avid might be an understatement. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely get into it, but when she means avid, we mean it is the largest personal collection of at least the, I think the birds themselves are the largest private collection of birds ever amassed by someone. Which are now in the New York Museum of Natural History? Not all of the birds, but uh, most okay. of the birds were sold eventually to the, um, the Natural History Museum in New York. And the rest of his collection was given to the British Museum. He was known to have worked at the family bank, which was N.M. Rothschild and Son. N.M., Nathan Mayer. N.M. Rothschild and Sons in London when he was 21. He was not a happy camper in this job. <laughs> no. He was actually rather unhappy, but he did stay at the bank for quite a while, and he was given permission to actually leave the bank by his dad at a point before his father's death. He went on to, um, well, what did he go on to do? Uh, open a museum, that was it. <laughs> well, technically, Sorry. he went on to essentially work full-time at the museum technically the museum had been open before then he'd opened the museum right around the time he went to college 
So a, mm. brief, a brief background on his life and, and his interest in zoology and various mm-hmm. uh, things around that. When he was seven, he actually said to his dad, he goes, Papa, I'm going to open a museum someday. And he started collecting insects and butterflies. And by the time he was 10, his parents actually gave him a little shed in the backyard where he could show off his collection. And it just got bigger and bigger from there. So by the time he turned 21, his parents actually was opened a little museum for him on the edge of Tring Park as a birthday present. And when he went off to university, the park itself with live animals had various animals such as kangaroos, cranes, storks, zebras, wild horses, emus, an anteater, and a pangolin. Just to name a few. I didn't know about the amper. Amper. Anteater. I didn't know about the anteater. Amper. <laughs> That's not an animal. He just collected things. Things. He just collected animals from everywhere, didn't he? Oh, oh. Literally almost everywhere. But while he was in college, he had people look after the museum for him. And he had staff members who were actually curators to go to other countries uh, or have other countries send them their specimens and he would have them displayed at the museum. So he was sort of a part-time, he was, he was full-time owner, part-time worker, I guess, while he was in college and doing politics. But after he was able to get out of politics at run age 40, I think, then he was able to make it essentially his full-time profession. Well, if we're talking about, politics i can actually get a little bit into that because i researched that part yeah go um, ahead because it definitely was in, important go ahead yeah he because he was a member of uh parliament that's it he was a conservative member of parliament actually and it was only for 11 years he it was from 1899 to 1910 and this is where i was state of israel one of the declarations it's it's not a well-known declaration i didn't know much about this declaration and i grew up jewish and went to judaic school so that should tell you something (laughs) if i didn't know much about it he had he had a part or he played a part pertaining to the balfour declaration and the balfour declaration was actually originally a letter from Arthur James Balfour, who was the foreign secretary at the time. And basically the declaration stood for the support of creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine, then Palestine, today's Israel. It, and it, it went into details about, you know, not discrim- no discrimination against those who already live there, Jewish, non-Jewish, didn't matter. And during this time, so this is while he's in Parliament, so this is sometime between 1899 and 1910, which which is very weird. And I actually think it's a little bit later. During this time, it's it's really interesting because it's originally a letter. I'm not exactly sure. if, If you look it up, there's no clear definition of when it went from a letter to a declaration other than it was approved by the League of Nations 
on July 24th, 1992, when Palestine really became a British mandate. Wait, so it, it's 1992? very interesting. 1992? 1922, I'm sorry. <laughs> did I say 92? You did I thought say I said 22. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's July 24th, 1922. <laughs> it's right in front of me. I don't know why I said 92. <laughs> but July 24th, 1922 is when Palestine became a British mandate. Do you mind, Kat? And the interesting thing is that this declaration actually is opposite or is an opposite statement to what is known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement and then also the Hussein-McMahon correspondences. So those two agreements or that agreement and the correspondence, one was just a correspondence, one was a literal agreement, is opposite to the Balfour Declaration. Basically, they're not, in, in the Sykes-Picot and Hussein-McMahon, they're not agreeing that Palestine should become a Jewish homeland. Now, this is important because at the time, and the reason that actually uh, Arthur James Balf Balfour sent the letter to Rothschild in particular is because Rothschild had a prominent position in the Anglo-Jewish community and at the time he had Zionist beliefs. Zionist beliefs. Let me pronounce that properly. And not only that, he also held membership in several societies and papers as well. So he had a way to get the word out. He had a position that uh, of support for the letter slash declaration. So it's not well known today, and I kind of understand why, but it was prominent back then because it is a statement that is opposite to most of the other agreements that were made at the time pertaining to a Jewish homeland. Fascinating. But yeah. Yeah, that's his uh, dabble in politics. <laughs> and uh, another little side fact. Don't know if you know this, but if I can find it in my notes, he was in the army for a little bit. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, he served part-time. He, he was a part-time officer in the Royal Buckinghamshire Yeomanry. And he retired from this position literally a year before his retirement from politics in 1909. Interesting. Just a little fun fact there. Yeah. But he's more well known for everything you're going to talk about. <laughs> uh, animals. Lots and lots of animals. <laughs> Understatement of the century. Mm -hmm. So Lots and lots. As, mm -hmm. as we said, his obsession really started when he was around seven and by the time he went off to college he'd actually been gifted Tring Park by his parents and had opened in 1892 his own zoo museum it's it's called it was actually called Walter's Zoological Museum which is now known as the Natural History Museum at Tring which is a public museum and has been well, obviously except for this year has been open ever since <laughs> yes our museum's closed too, and I'm so sad. I want to go back to my museum. <laughs> She's talking about her job. Yes. 
<sighs> someday, someday. I'm just clarifying for people. <laughs> It'll reopen. I mean, hey, the vaccine's starting to go out now, so hopefully soon. We'll see. You know, I'm figuring May at the earliest, but we'll see. That's. I, I don't think it's going to happen until end end of the year, like fall. Probably not. But debates. I can. I can. This is I a can, debate I can, for another time. I can live vicariously through Walter Rothschild and his zoo. We'll go from there. His zoo slash museum. So as we said, he would accumulate variety of different materials, animals, insects, arachnids, anything he can study and get his hands on as well as his, as well as his curators, Ernst Hartert and Carl uh, Jordan. They actually together created a scientific journal for the museum itself called Novitatis Zoologiae, which launched in 1894. Over 45 years of the, the scientific journal, they published more than 1,700 scientific books and papers and described more than 5,000 new species of animals. Jeez Louise. Including, you get ready for this. This one's great. Including... The Rothschild giraffe, named after Rothschild, obviously. What? Yeah. Now, this one's really interesting. I did not know anything about this because to me, a giraffe was just a giraffe in general sense. I didn't understand why this one was so special. But you know how giraffes usually have the two little horn-like things on them? They're called ossicones, but they're like little horn on the top of their heads. Okay. Right? They usually have those two little bumps on the top of their heads for the giraffe. A Rothschild giraffe has five. Okay. I don't know what you do with five. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. It probably has something to do with evolution. Hey, that's a fun thing to study. <laughs> now, you were saying he didn't graduate from college, but in 1898, the University of Geisen actually gave uh, well, most of my sources called him Walter. I guess that's his preferred name. So I'll probably refer to him as Walter for the most part. They actually gave him an honorary doctorate in 1898. And he, at, in 1899, became a trustee of the British Museum and also in, elected to as a fellow of the Royal Society in 1911 for all of his zoological work. That's really cool. Yeah. And during... That's actually really cool. Yeah, it, it, I mean... Partly when you have daddy's money, you can do a lot of things, but he actually put it to quite a good use, too. So he wasn't just a trust fund child. During his entire lifetime, he employed over 400 collectors to this museum, coming from 48 various different countries. That's it's a, a lot, lot of people. Of people. Mm -hmm. And as I said, collectors and curators were also sending things to him at the Tring Museum, too. And that kind of doesn't surprise me, though. Oh, no. Oh, no, part. no. When, when you have a very famous and popular zoological museum, just like with the Smithsonian, people will send you things mm -hmm. for you to study, especially if you've got collectionists or, or scholars of some kind there to study them. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Now, as we said, this is an obsession of his, but as a, I guess you could call it a subcategory obsession. He had one, he was particularly obsessed with birds and especially the cassowary bird, which I'll get into it in a bit. 
but my goodness, yeah. he had so many castaways. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was insane. He had how many castaways? Oh, I haven't gotten to it yet, but it, a lot. I, uh, over a hundred stuffed castaways. Jeez Louise! Yeah. Why do you need so many cassowaries? Oh, I haven't even told you how many animals and, and, and stuffed things that were on display. My goodness. I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> so many. I haven't even gotten there yet. So. Well, this is going to be interesting. Oh, I've got, I've got. My notes read like a research paper. I love that this was. I've, I was. I have been looking forward to doing Rothschild for quite some time. I find them very fascinating. So. He also had a thing for obviously exotic animals, as we said, emus and kangaroos. He also had zebras too. And I'll also get into that because right now I'm just going to talk about his interest in zoology and the museum itself. Afterwards, I'll get into his eccentricities and the stories that people know him for, especially those really infamous photos people may have seen of him with the zebras and the tortoises. Those are really oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a famous picture of him literally riding a giant tortoise, which he did actually make it move. Like he was actually riding it by dangling a piece of lettuce in front of it and having the tortoise go after the lettuce. Now, these tortoises. kind of mean, no offense. <laughs> a bit, but I don't know. It's, it's, it still seems kind of funny. It's a very Victorian thing to do. I have so much fun researching the various eccentricities of Victorians. There is so much. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, oh, I I will share my notes with you another time because you'll definitely get a kick out of most of them. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So actually... At one point during his lifetime, he was actually able to acquire 144 live giant tortoises from the, both the Galapagos Islands and the Aldebra Islands, which is in the Indian Ocean. And he was using partly the money he had and partly his dad's money, obviously, because they're very wealthy. He was able to actually lease the island of Aldebra for 10 years in order to actually stop hunting and poaching of the giant tortoises. So essentially he owned an island. That's really cool. That is pretty cool. But with, instead of owning an island for vacation, like people do now, he owned it in order to stop the killing of these giant tortoises, which were used for scientific study. And now I know you've heard about this one. I've heard of it, but I didn't realize how connected it was to the Rothschilds. One of my sources actually was talking about one of the most bizarre specimens in display at the Tring Museum are the dressed fleas from Mexico. <laughs> I found that one too in my research and I was like, what is that? <laughs> it's really cute. <laughs> it looks so weird. You're going, it's really cute. I'm going, this is so odd and strange and weird. And what? <laughs> well, one, one of us, they're, they're literally, I think, dressed as bride and groom. Which I the, to me is the funnier uh-huh. part. Yeah, it's a bride and groom. Mm-hmm. One of the fleas was in a wedding dress, <laughs> and the other one is in a three-piece suit. <laughs> it, it's a mini wedding dress. We are definitely going to have to post that picture. Like, Maybe oh. that will be part of our our uh, Instagram update or Facebook update. It'll be on Instagram. It's it's very fun, very fun. We'll we'll definitely post it. But the thing with fleas isn't so much that he had collected 
the fleas or they were given to him. Um, it's actually, they were souvenirs actually made, <clears throat> excuse me, made in Mexico as souvenirs for tourists. But his brother, Charles and Charles's daughter, uh, Miriam actually both studied fleas themselves. And Miriam herself was also one of the first people to actually figure out how fleas jump from a scientific method. Which is really interesting because I'm like, oh, a woman Ooh. scientist. Look at that. Very nice. Interesting. Yeah. That's really And cool. she'll come back into play in just a bit, too. Because there's a, a bit of a scandal with those mistresses, mistresses that we mentioned before. So, as I said, the Tree Museum has been open for 125 years, if my math is correct. Uh, but, it, well, literally, it's been open since 1894. We'll just put it that way. Majority of the... Roughly 4,900 specimens on display at the museum have been there since it opened. That's a lot of stuff. That's that's the major bulk of it, isn't it? Mm, yes. Outside of the birds and a few other things, yes. Mm -hmm. And this is what happened with the birds. So 1931... He had to sell his, as I mentioned, extensive bird collection, which was roughly 280,000 stuffed and taxidermy birds on display. Yeah. How big was this museum? <laughs> Just alone for the birds? This place is huge, right? <laughs> so it's estimated that the, that the bird collection could have been as much as two million dollars to uh, as a cost mm -hmm. when he mm -hmm. had to sell it because he needed blackmail money to cover <laughs> scandal that he needed to get himself out of he only w sold it to the american museum of natural history in new york for only two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars ouch and he was because he, he he was being blackmailed by uh, an old mistress, right? Right. So he had had two mistresses, as we had mentioned, one of which also happened to have been married, which he, I guess, didn't know. And they decided to blackmail Walter. And it had been going, by the time he sold his bird collection, it had already been going on for nearly 40 years of blackmail. Jeez Louise. Yeah. That... That's a long time. And, and for him to have to sell it off means that he was running out of money and his family wasn't banking originally. So, like, that, that, that's a lot of money. Well, it wasn't money that to, he didn't have run through. Yeah, it was, it's, it would have, I mean, he, like I said, he died in 1938, right? So, 1937. Seven. Seven. 37. So, this is six years before his death. So, the man's in his late 50s, early 60s, I think, by this point. And I think mm -hmm. I th he was also, he was starting to fail in his health and everything. So I think it was partly just a way of just take it. I'm done. Just leave me alone. He's in his, he's like 59, 60 at this point. If I, if you like look at the yeah, years I think he died around, that he was yeah, alive. Yeah, he died at about 66. Uh, he, 67, 68. Oh, okay, so I'm because he was born in February 1868. Right, right. Okay, math doesn't work for me sometimes. <laughs> I can tell. It's okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't work for me all the yeah. time either. But as far as I do understand. He, he was kind of. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, as far as I understand, most of the birds that he sold to the American Museum of Natural History in New York are still on display, to my understanding, too. So, Unless some of them maybe went to the Audubon Museum, but I think most of them are still at the Natural History Museum. I think so, too. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, we didn't know much about this blackmailing until 1983, when Walter's niece, as I mentioned before, Miriam... She actually published an account of her uncle's life titled Dear Lord Rothschild, which sort of mm-hmm. being a somewhat firsthand account of sorts, I kind of really want to read this book. I would, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. would, too. So more on to the whole collections and the eccentricities part. He eventually amassed what was is said to be the largest collection of animals ever collected by a private individual. And you're ready for the numbers? Sure. 300,000 bird skins, 200,000 bird's eggs, 30,000 beetles, 250,000 butterflies, 144 tortoises, as I said, about 280,000 various bird specimens, and just a numerous amount of variety of various animals and reptiles yep. mm-hmm. just wow so yes yeah now because he was very scientific about it remember we had his curators and people sending him specimens and writing the scientific yeah. papers so he actually during the mm-hmm. time that he had he'd been able to work with the museum he was actually responsible for identifying and naming 153 new insects 58 different types of birds, as we said, his massive, massive obsession with birds. Which I like birds too. Birds are very fascinating. Various spiders, and also for the subspecies of the Rothschild giraffe that got named after him, which he actually found that particular giraffe during a, a, a trip to East Africa in the very early 1900s. He was like, oh, that's different. Now, you remember I talked about the cassowaries? They're a dangerous bird. Very dangerous bird. I would not want to come across one. They are mostly known to Australia. No, thank you. The the, the article I was reading about the cassowary says specifically, be sure to look at the feet, paying special attention to the inner toe, which has a five-inch long claw, like (laughs) a raptor. So it's essentially Uh an emu mixed with a velociraptor. And this is when you run. <laughs> well, if you can, I, if they, they, they can don't, run around. Don't really if, run. If, if you can run away from them, good on you. Because like emus, they could run around 30 miles per hour. They're very fast. And actually, there's uh, an article that stated in 1926, one of the, a cassowary killed, unfortunately killed a young boy in Australia using its five-inch claw, ending up severing his jugular vein. So these things are sharp and very deadly and very fast. That poor kid, though. But this was Rothschild's super obsession. Lots and lots and lots and lots of cassowaries. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Now, as I mentioned, he had... there, There are a couple famous pictures of him, one of which was the giant tortoise, which he rode around by trying to feed it lettuce on a stick. The other one is 
him driving a carriage pulled by four zebras, which is which oh, is a yes. story I'd heard about mm-hmm. before. And obviously there's picture proof to back it up. The interesting thing about the zebras, this is hilarious. So it was mostly on a challenge of sorts. So zebras at the time, most people had never seen one in England. They obviously just knew horses. So they said, zebras are uncouth. They're, you can't tame them. They're just wild beasts. And Rothschilds goes, I could try taming them. I'll t- that's my challenge. I'll, ch- I'll try and tame it. I don't see why you couldn't. And he did. He actually was able to tame four zebras well enough to actually pull his carriage. The funny thing about it is, as we said, zebras were known to be just wild, untamable beasts to the Victorians. So if he wanted to drive his carriage throughout London, which there is a picture of him parked in front of Buckingham Palace, he was only allowed to do it very, very early in the morning before any other carriages were out on the road because people believed that the other the horses would be spooked by the zebras and run off with the people inside the carriages. But he proved them wrong. People are weird. <laughs> As we said, I know I've mentioned before, when he went to college, he had the, the, the museum was open. He had Train Park with various wild animals, the kangaroos and the emus. And, and, and there were actually dingoes on there as well. So he really liked Australia. Nothing wrong with that. And he actually... When he went off to college at... I said, yep, nothing nope. wrong with that. I agreed. <laughs> no, Australia is awesome. I love it. When he actually went to... <laughs> and yet neither of us have been. I can't wait for this to be over. We're traveling. I've wanted to go there since I was seven. <laughs> I want to go so bad. So when he went to Magdalene College in 1887, he actually took uh-huh. some animals with him. Because he sort of had his own room. Do you want to know what he took with him to college? A cassowary. No. No. That would be... I don't know that the cassowary probably would have been happy being inside. And probably would have torn up his furniture. I'm joking. (laughs) Was it a little turtle? No. It was a flock of kiwi birds. Was it a little birdie? I was right about birds it was a bird. when I got there third time. Yeah, a little, little flock of kiwi birds, and they're so cute. But yeah. unfortunately, the administration of the university said, you can't have these here. So this is hilarious to me. They were removed okay. off campus and placed in the custody of a Mr. Doggett, a Cambridge-based taxidermist, who was able to look after the kiwis while Rothschild was in college. And then after Rothschild went out of college, he took the Kiwis back with him to Tring Park. As far as I know, they are now taxidermied and on display in Tring Park. Wow. But I find it funny that of all the people to look after the Kiwis was a taxidermist. <laughs> now, there are three stories that I, I've very frequently heard over the years about Walter Rothschild, but I could not find any definitive articles or sources that said that these stories were true. And some of them are a bit crazy enough that they're probably just rumors. Or if there are any firsthand accounts, I couldn't find them online without maybe having a subscription to something. Mm -hmm. But the first one 
is that he had at Tring Park a tamed live bear that was trained to actually slap women on the bottom. So every time women would pass the bear, if he was out out of his cage, they, he would actually just slap their butts. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it'd be interesting to know to find out if anyone knows please let me know if any of these are true because i do find them hilarious but i could not find if these were definitively true or they were just really fun rumors the second one is that he gave a dinner for lord salisbury a very political a uh, very important political dinner in which he had 12 guests at the dinner and next to each seat was another empty seat so 24 seats in total and when the guests sat down to dinner 12 monkeys dressed in suits came down and sat next to the politicians in those empty chairs and ate with them. Again, I don't know if that's true, but that would be cool if it was. (laughs) And the third one, which I think is probably the least, or I'm sorry, the most likely to probably be true because it definitely seems like something that Rothschild would probably do depending on the species of snakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my doorbell. Sorry. At his home, I don't necessarily know about the museum because that wouldn't be, it it could have happened at the museum too since he had live animals running around the park. But the story goes is that he let snakes have full reign of the banisters throughout his home and probably at the museum. So just up and down the staircases, all along the, the, just everywhere. Snakes everywhere. That wouldn't surprise me. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not that surprising when you think of Baron Rothschild the second, but uh, just weird. Snakes are creepy. Hey, snakes are cool. I love snakes. I don't know that I would, if, I mean, I would love to own a snake at some point. I really like snakes, but I don't know that I would let a snake just have free reign on a stairwell. Heck no. Or slither up a banister. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I don't care, you know, poisonous or not poisonous, it's definitely not poisonous. I mean, and even if I had, say, a python, I don't know that I would let the python Mm-mm. just have full reign of the, the staircase banister. Mm-mm. 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 No. No. <laughs> no. I don't want to be killed in my sleep, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> not a boa constrictor? No, thanks. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had one of those. Those are fun. I like holding those things. They're pretty cool. I'll hold one, but I wouldn't let it run free. <laughs> I'll give it Only back in to Florida, its owner. That, that's, that works for mm-hmm. me. I like returning animals to their owner. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Especially when they're your cat. Ew, kitty. Well, I don't let her out of the house, so my cat is stuck inside. She's an indoor kitty, and she's not allowed to run anywhere, so... <laughs> she can run around the house, she just can't leave the house. That's all I had on Baron Rothschild II. Anything else that you happen to have? No, I majorly gave all my little tidbits um, and pertaining to, you know, the, the Balfour Declaration and... and his, his little stint in the in the army that was majorly it for me those were my little little bits of information that i found that i thought were just neat about him outside of his major sorry my cat is like i'm gonna step on all your notes uh, outside of his major <laughs> collecting so yeah i was mostly more interested in the collecting than the politics and i think we both went 
opposite ways with that, which which works. It works for us. But yeah. that's it yeah. for today. That's everything. Now, I do have a question for mm-hmm. you. Because I was thinking about this kind of while, while I was doing my research. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking more along the lines of, like, his life as as he... At, at, like the zoological part of his life, not necessarily so much the politics, but more like so. If a movie was made based on Baron Rothschild or a character that was based off a of Baron Rothschild, in terms of his Victorian eccentricities and the riding the tortoises and the training of the zebras in Tring Park and setting that up and all of his. All, all the live animals running around and everything. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> My question to you was, who would play him in a movie? Jim Carrey. Really? Yeah. He's funny and he's worked with animals before. No, what, you mean Ace Ventura? Yeah. Well, there's Ace Ventura. He, I think he played like one with God that like Steve Carell later took over or something. Like a Noah's Ark kind of thing. Oh, I, uh, Bruce Almighty. Yes. Yes. Wasn't that a Jim Carrey? It's called the Bruce Almighty. Isn't that a Jim Carrey Yeah, the first one was Jim Carrey. Okay. The first one was, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. No, Morgan Freeman as God? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was just kind of curious who who you saw him playing, because I'm like, there's only one person. Excuse me. It is really dry today and very hot outside. There's only one person that came to my mind when I'm looking at actual pictures of Rothschild and just especially that one t- giant tortoise picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's only one person I can think of. And he seems like he would have a hell of a lot of fun playing this character, but it wouldn't be an English character. It would probably be a character based on Rothschild, probably set, mm-hmm. say, in America or something. Care to take a guess? Nicolas Cage. Yes. Of course you did. I'm not surprised. Well, I, I would I, okay. In terms of Nicolas Cage playing a character based off a of Rothschild, or Nicolas Cage playing Joe Exotic, I don't see Joe Exotic all that much, depending on what they're doing with it. Else, but I see him playing Rothschild a far more mm-hmm. likely uh, in terms of overall character than I might see him as playing Joe Exotic. But you know, yeah, all this eccentricities and. And, and collections and interest in animals and especially if like the, the monkeys the monkey dinner and the snakes and I just I, I yeah if I were to cast it he would be the first person on my list I was just curious <laughs> well that's all I've got well since we answered that question that's all I've got for <laughs> today I've got. I do have an update about Instagram for everybody. So I know I started like a, a history today kind of segment or today in history, whatever you want to call it. You can call it what you wish. What happened in history on this day? Uh, segment, and I was doing it Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'm going to change it to when I actually find something that's interesting in history that happened on said day. So, <laughs> um, because sometimes there's just not much that happened that I can find concrete information to give an article on so that people can read about it. So it's going to kind of be random from here on out, just so you guys know. going to have to kind of check. It's not like it's going down. So if you check later, it, it's not a big deal. I just wanted to give you the heads up that it's not going to be Monday, Wednesday, Fridays anymore. It's just going to be according to when I can find 
something good that happened in history on said day. But that's fair. That's fair. No problem. Uh, that's all I had other than. Oh, oh, before we forget, Happy New Year's, everybody, because oh, yes. this is actually coming out on the 7th. We're recording it now, but it'll be out on the 7th. Happy New Year's. I hope everyone had a safe holiday and staying safe. Yes. Hopefully the new year will be a whole lot better, starting to look that way at the very least. Alrighty. We hope so. And uh, please reach out to us. History explains all at gmail.com is our email. Please leave us a review. We want to hear from you. We also have a Facebook page. It's called History Explains It All. And as I was talking about Instagram, History Explains It All underscore podcast. So we have uh, several ways for you to reach out to us or do you can also write a review and we will read it and respond, uh, reach out to you personally if that's what you want. We can do that. So please, we'd love to hear from you. We want to hear any ideas that you have on what you want to hear about or any information that you found on any of the topics that we have posted on before. So please reach out to us. This is actually also the start of season two of the podcast. So just heads up. This is season two, episode one. Love it. And we hope to see you soon. See you in a couple weeks. Yeah. (laughs) Bye. Bye.